Welcome to Cato Audio for April 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, magician Penn Gillette discusses how he came to be a libertarian. Emma Ashford discusses the troubling downsides of economic sanctions. Author Michael Doyle discusses John Stuart Mill and intervention. And Neil McCluskey discusses the Fed's ongoing intervention in American classrooms. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Some foreign policy folks are predicting that things can only get worse as the 2016 election season heats up with specific respect to uh, foreign policy. Uh, We have Donald Trump who's making uh, very big pronouncements about how he would handle uh, various elements of foreign policy without a lot of detail. And of course, Hillary Clinton is well known to be someone who has supported uh, many, uh, if not most, of the interventions that the United States has engaged in over the past 20 years. To talk about how we got here and where we're headed, Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow at Cato. So let, let's begin with Barack Obama and uh, what we understand now more than ever about his foreign policy and how he sort of evolved in office on on that subject. Well, I think that a lot of uh, Barack Obama's foreign policy views uh, were kind of looked at through the lens of Iraq uh, initially, and I think that's appropriate. He gave this famous speech, relatively famous speech, when he was a uh, Illinois state legislator in 2002, where he was questioning the war, and he made it a big issue in his uh, in the in the primaries against Hillary Clinton, and I think it was instrumental in helping him to secure the nomination in 2008. Uh, And, uh, you know, as he said, I'm not opposed to all wars, but I'm opposed to stupid wars. That's basically what he said. Um, It turns out that, yes, Iraq is an important lens for examining Barack Obama's foreign policy, but it's not the only one. And now I think we know a little bit more about his um, uh, having, from the perspective of, of a president and the advice that he was getting from senior military leaders and the foreign policy establishment, um, the other important moments were uh, the Afghan surge of 2009, the Libyan intervention of 2011, and the refusal, some would say failure, but the refusal on his part to intervene decisively in Syria in 2013. I would just say to that that I think, unfortunately, in retrospect, we're going to decide that Obama's best foreign policy decisions were the ones he made before he became president. Since he's become president, I think Uh, especially what we've learned in some of the recent uh, news articles and magazine articles, is that his foreign policy decision-making was a bit of a mess. Uh, He often doesn't appear to have been the main driving force behind many of those decisions. And as a result, you know, I I think when you read what Obama the man believes about foreign policy, it's hard to see how that person was the leader of what we actually got over the past seven years or so. Is that just a modern phenomenon of presidents who because uh, I'm trying to think how many deployments did Ronald Reagan engage in uh, with respect to the U.S. military. And, I mean, is that is that just the uh, bureaucracy of the Pentagon getting better at shifting presidents into the places that they want them? Well, the foreign policy establishment is a heck of a lot larger uh, than it was during Ronald Reagan's time, and it's a heck of a lot larger still than... It w- uh, than you know Dwight Eisenhower's time, so so I think that the amount of inertia, sheer inertia that can be generated by the national security state, is overwhelming uh, in some respect. And and in fact, uh, the president of the United States, even if he has very strong opinions that conflict with that consensus, um, is going to have a really hard time turning things around. I would say too that one thing, if you compare, for example. George Bush, the elders foreign policy team, it reflected very closely his own views of how the world works and how foreign policy should be performed. And I think Obama, on the other hand, has a very different group of people around him on foreign policy. He doesn't really share a worldview with Samantha Power, who has been a very vigorous proponent of liberal interventionism, nor does he share much of a worldview with Hillary Clinton, who I think we're going to we may learn, is a much more hawkish person than he. Mm -hmm. So what have we learned most recently about uh, Barack Obama's foreign policy as practiced? I think that um, 
We knew a fair amount about the Libya case. It's been written about. I teach it in my class. So I think it's been reasonably well done. But I think that the, the two-part series in the New York Times from a few weeks ago, this is late February, put the focus on Hillary Clinton, right? Hillary Clinton's role in the decision to intervene decisively in Libya. Um, and I think that the, it does not reflect very well on her. I think it suggests a, a inclination to intervene, uh, a hawkishness, if you will, that many people find off-putting. I think more generally it reflects what I have called the interventionist bias in, in D.C., which is that if you're, if you're going to be caught failing at something, it's, you'd rather be caught trying and failing than not trying at all. So the, the, the ultimate sin in Washington is the sin of uh, omission, not the sin of commission. And, and again, um, we hosted uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter, who was the uh, chair of the uh, policy planning staff at State Department, so one of Hillary Clinton's primary foreign policy advisors during Clinton's time as Secretary of State. And she had said this at, uh, during a Cato forum in February, and then it was quoted almost word for word in the New York Times story. When the choice is between action and inaction, and you've got risks in either direction, which you often do, she'd, Hillary Clinton, rather be caught trying. And that, to me, is the ultimate statement of Hillary Clinton's approach to foreign policy. And in terms of what we've learned about the inner workings and, and how well Obama is or is not making these decisions, I think that the two-part article from The Times really is devastating to me because you, you hear two things in particular. First, you hear that uh, uh, roughly a week before the decision to, to intervene is made, um, all of exactly one meeting evidently a searching discussion between Hillary Clinton and exactly one person, um, one Libyan who doesn't even live in Libya, uh, is exactly right. all the planning they do right. to decide they should do it. And then Obama later says to someone that it was a 51-49 decision to intervene with Hillary's kind of support or reporting about what was going on as the tiebreaker. And to me, if the bar is not much, much higher than 51-49, your presidency has got some serious trouble. Right. Okay. So uh, with specific respect to that intervention, do we have any type of sense because we're sort of moving into full-on campaign mode here in 2016, the 2011 Libya intervention, Chris, you've pointed out, fails uh, uh, some key tests mm -hmm. for uh, military intervention overseas, that is public support, congressional support, uh, clear objectives, mm -hmm. and... Uh, Compelling national security interests, which there wasn't absolutely, either. So, right. Absolutely. So uh, failing those tests, do we have a sense of the people running for president who may have been involved in that decision? A little bit. Um, and specifically with regard to those tests. Right. So the, the key difference among the major car, uh, candidates on the who still remain on the Republican side between Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz has been quite critical of the decision to go into Libya, and Marco Rubio was supportive of it. He was supportive of it at the time. So I do think there is an interesting um, divide within the Republican Party, as there was in 2011, by the way. There was a, there was a pretty important... Uh, disagreement among Republicans on whether or not the Libyan intervention was appropriate and whether or not the exercise of executive power that the Obama administration asserted was consistent with traditional conservative principles uh, of, uh, you know, at a minimum, a sharing of responsibilities between Congress and uh, the executive with respect to foreign policy. Regarding Hillary Clinton's electoral uh, chances, I think that she survived the Benghazi hearings, but I think, in fact, the more problematic uh, piece of this for her is going to be the unraveling of the Libyan success. You know, the, the Libya intervention followed what is now a sad, sadly common pattern of uh, utterly ridiculous and poor planning, uh, followed by an intervention that immediately um, sees mission creep and then an eventual plunge into chaos, um, bizarrely um, followed by a uh, way too early cry of success. Uh, eventually then, um, over the years, we discover it was actually a humongous failure. Uh, and that failure is that, that, that bubble is now coming up right uh, during the campaign, and it's going to be bad. I think it's going to be bad for Hillary on foreign policy. One of the key moments in, in the Libyan operation was quite a bit of pressure from uh, European allies, especially the French and the British, uh, to get involved. And at one moment in the, in the time story, uh, 
it, it's obvious that Hillary Clinton is is aghast at the the possibility that these countries might actually intervene in this dispute, and we would be standing on the sidelines. And like I said, I've studied this case, and I and I teach it in my class, and yet I was still sort of slack jawed by so many instances in the story that I just couldn't believe it was much worse than I expected it to be. And it really comes down to this. You hear so many people in the U.S. foreign policy establishment, it's, bo it's bipartisan, it's not just Republicans, it's both on, on both sides, who say, if the United States does not act, essentially everywhere, then no one else will. The, the mood in this story, and especially Hillary Clinton's mood, appears to be this great fear that if we don't act, someone else might. The, the mere possibility that that will happen sends her into just, it, just, she doesn't, she just can't handle it. She can't handle the idea that other countries might act without the United States leading them there. So there's a gang of four that want to be involved in some sort of fight somewhere. And you're saying that Hillary Clinton's impulse is toward uh, trying to run out in front. Right. And she wants to be charge. in the front of that. The idea that other countries actually have greater interests at stake at Libya, which many other countries did, the idea that they actually would act on those interests without the United States dragging them into the fight is just utterly foreign to her. And, and that sort of goes back to this notion of, that D.C. suffers from this horrendous action bias because on the one hand, you have the folks like Hillary, who are embarrassed by the notion that someone else would take action without the U.S. leading, and then others, and in fact, Obama himself, in, in the longer piece about the Obama doctrine, argues that, in fact, no one else will lead if the U.S. doesn't. So you have right. people thinking, we have to lead everywhere, and then some other group of people saying, and if we didn't, then it'd be really bad. So it's, you're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Isn't part of that, though, the idea that, well, if you're visibly seen attempting to do something, you just you get points for that? Yes. And if you're visibly seen not attempting to do something, you're aloof, you're uh, not right. paying attention. Dithering. Dithering is another word. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, that seems a fairly natural response to uh, a lot of those kinds of activities. Right. And, and you do in the, in the uh, Atlantic article, Obama's frustration over the expectation on the part of the foreign policy consensus that the most important thing you can do is go to war. Uh, the reasons being sort of secondary, in fact. It's like people expect you to do something and that something is kinetic action. That is, that something is dropping bombs or, or whatnot. Uh, and and he's, he's visibly frustrated by it. He's like, this is not the only way to measure the success or failure of U.S. foreign policy. Sadly, on the other hand, in, in that same piece, he, yeah, right. he talks about the fact that uh, it was really the Europeans' fault that Libya didn't go right. If they hadn't <laughs> yes. been so distracted, it, it would have been just fine, right, which, right. which which made me question a little bit some of the other stuff he says, which makes me feel like he knows what's going on and because he's become increasingly fatalistic about the possibilities of U.S. influence and military action to make things better for everyone else. But then he goes and says, well, we yeah. could have done Libya better. And, and frankly, that is such a common refrain. Uh, and, we, you know, just the recent uh, issues of every foreign affairs journal you want to name, you have people calling for increased uh, U.S. engagement in the Middle East in a variety of up to six or seven different countries, all of which say we could do better this time. It reminds me of Larry David's fantastic uh, piece uh, about uh, Obama's first four years. It could have been worse. Um, <laughs> that's not much of an argument for right, foreign policy. Right, right. All right. So with respect to uh, ongoing matters that the U.S. is directly involved in, uh, specifically Syria, where are we now? And uh, Hillary Clinton seems to indicate that she would go much further than President Obama would in terms of fighting ISIS or anyone else who's around. Right. Uh, I think that we have to state up front that what's happened in Syria over the last five years is just a it's utter human catastrophe. This has just been horrific. And I, I think we have to start the conversation right there. Um, but we don't end the conversation right there. And I think that, that for many of these people, and Hillary Clinton included, um, the idea that things would only, get, would only have gotten better if the United States had intervened decisively in 2011 or 2012 or 2013 or 2014, anywhere along the line, had the United States been more actively involved, supporting more uh, rebels on the ground, attacking more decisively the Assad forces, putting in troops ourselves, all of those things, the idea that 
at any moment in this process, uh, it would have been better for the United States to get involved. Um, I, I disagree. I look, at the, I look at what's actually played out, as horrific as it is, and it's hard for me to see how the application of U.S. military power would have decisively changed this, the conditions on the ground. Agreed. And, and I think, you know, and, and they're sort of the fortunate and the unfortunate pieces. If you're just looking at Obama's foreign policy making on Syria, you know, one of the unfortunate, well, start off with the fortunate pieces, he wasn't interested early on in getting involved. So that was good. Uh, then he drew this ridiculous red line and said, oh, if Assad uses chemical weapons, then it's all, you know, all bets are off. That was a dumb thing to do because then what happened? He used chemical weapons and then Obama was sort of stuck. Uh, his bacon got saved by the Russians, of course, um, <laughs> yeah. which is now a repeating refrain to me because um, the U.S. is also sort of off the hook for intervening uh, to some degree now because of Russian intervention. Um, so, you know, Obama to me has sort of been inconsistent at best on, on Syria. And now I think, unfortunately, he's making every – he sort of split the baby at this point. He's sort of intervening a little bit, not enough to do anything. Uh, but so he satisfies the D.C. action bias on the one hand. I'm doing something. But he's not doing enough to end anything or bring anything to conclusion so everyone can still criticize. Unfortunately, this is as bad as it is. It's still probably better than what we're going to get with Hillary or, say, Donald Trump. Right. As critical as uh, s some of you, probably both of you, might be about some of Ted Cruz's statements about uh, Syria, he does and has been fairly consistent in a lot of his speeches in saying – uh, if you don't draw a lot of lines in the sand, you don't have to follow through on having drawn those lines in, in the sand. And so the fewer claims you make of U.S. authority or a U.S. interest in something, then the less often you have to do that and the more credible, frankly, your claims may be. That's right. I think that Cruz has tried to navigate a middle ground between the most hawkish elements of the Republican Party, the neoconservatives loosely, and the non-interventionist bias of someone like Senator Rand Paul. He did it rather ex quite explicitly. Ted Cruz tried to stake out this position about a year ago. Um, I think he recognizes uh, that the public is not, you know, the public is obviously angry about ISIS. They want to do something about it, but they're also anxious about being sucked back into the middle of the uh, Middle East maelstrom, uh, yet another civil war. So he... Uh, I think he is trying to navigate that that middle ground, and uh, it's it's you know it's an open question about how he actually execute it. Because again, he's still dealing with the same national security infrastructure that Barack Obama uh, was dealing with in, in large measure. I mean, uh, Michael Glennon calls it double government. That the, 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 the government doesn't actually change all that much. You have a very superficial change at the top, but the people who actually conduct U.S. foreign policy they they stay. All right, uh, I want to point to. A December 19th debate here. This is with uh, Hillary Clinton discussing a no-fly zone in Syria. Uh, Martha Raddatz asked, uh, Secretary Clinton, I'd like to go back to that. If I could, ISIS doesn't have aircraft. Al-Qaeda doesn't have aircraft. So would you shoot down a Syrian military aircraft or Russian airplane? And uh, part of uh, Clinton's response here says, I am advocating a no-fly zone because I think it gives us some leverage in our conversations with Russia. The no-fly zone, I would hope, would also be shared by Russia. If they will begin to turn their military attention away from going after the adversaries of Assad toward ISIS and put the Assad future on the political and diplomatic track where it belongs. Pandering. I, this is just pandering. This is not good foreign policy here. This is pandering. I think Clinton knows that terrorism is a bigger issue for the American public than Syria. Uh, the public has repeatedly said they don't really care much about Syria per se, but they do care about terrorists. And so Clinton is trying to make it clear that what she's doing is counter ISIS uh, sort of policy proposal. But uh, the idea that that's somehow good uh, for the U.S. long run in terms of helping resolve the Syria mess, clearly the most the clearest path to that is helping Russia help the Assad regime <laughs> as much as you might dislike the Assad regime. Um, and frankly, that's a bigger issue here that, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton and others seem to value, tremendously undervalue stability uh, and overvalue this notion of intervention. It's um, stability is what's going to stop people dying in Syria, not intervention. I mean, that, that quote is pretty remarkable. I mean, y you take quotes out of that, uh, like that out of context because people are responding on the fly. This is not a prepared speech. Uh, and yet it's rather, it, it, it's delusional. The idea that the Russians are going to change their mind, uh, focus their attention on, uh, you know, uh, 
containing the Assad regime is utterly absurd. It is, it is, it's crazy. Uh, and uh, uh, I mean, Trevor's right. I mean, the, the, the problem of Syria, there are so many, but the, but the problem for U.S. foreign policy is that so few Americans uh, are comfortable, for understandable reasons, Bashar Assad is a, is a, is a brutal thug. Uh, they're not comfortable saying, uh, yes, he's a brutal thug, but he's preferable to, to, to the alternatives. And we just, we, we have to deal with the world as it is, not the world as we wish it to be. Is there anyone on the Republican side who is willing to make to accept the fact that w w there will be continue to be bad leaders in countries that we don't like and that don't like us, but we have to work with them? I, Trump is a big, uh, you know, fan of Putin's, and I, I don't see <laughs> Trump challenging Russian, uh, you know, primacy in in the Syrian negotiations. And you know, frankly, if we look at the peace, uh, the ceasefire right now in Syria, the only reason it's it was achievable is because the U.S. worked with Russia, not against Russia, like Hillary called for there. So I, I don't see Trump, in particular, um, you know, deciding to move against that. There's another element here. Um, uh, regarding the no-fly zone or the, the idea of a no-fly zone generally, and that is it brings you closer to war. Absolutely. And, th and that, uh, to me, that is, a, that is something that is almost never talked about. It's almost, right. it's, it's, it's presented as something with an aim of preventing uh, war, right. but it, of course, mistakes are made. Right. I, I think that for, for many people... Uh, not just in the Syria case, but for many people, they, they still believe that the show of force, that a that the resolve, right, that a, that a clear communication of our uh, of our interest in seeing, uh, you know, our our ends achieved, um, that merely stating those and and perhaps even executing a no-fly zone, that that alone will uh, convince other countries to back down, other actors to just sort of give up, um, and I think that. Uh, you know, there have certainly been moments in American history when that's happened, but we also have to deal with those instances where exactly the opposite happened, where the intervention actually encouraged other actors to become more active, more heavily involved than they were before. Um, and maybe you don't achieve your, your ends at all. And then, oh, by the way, yes, we're talking about a nuclear armed adversary. And so at some point you have to ask yourself, what is this worth to the United States, not just to the United States, to the world, right? Are we really willing to risk a nuclear war with Russia over Syria? General Martin, really? General Martin Dempsey has described the process of setting up a no-fly zone uh, saying it would require as many as 70,000 American servicemen to dismantle Syria's sophisticated anti-aircraft system and then impose a 24-hour watch over the country. Right. And But that, but that, again, that's not often presented as, well, this is what we're going to do. A no-fly zone seems like an invisible barrier that we've just <laughs> right. put up in the it's air. It's a force field, right? Uh, They've seen too many Star Wars. With movies. perhaps yeah. some mimes <laughs> right. putting their hands on this <laughs> non-existent wall to indicate right. that it exists. Right. At last check, uh, how many countries had the Obama administration uh, expanded our various wars and engagements into? It's hard to keep track. Seven or eight, I think. Uh, some Somewhere in that vicinity. Um, partly this is a function of something that, you know, we've all talked about, Ben Friedman especially, has talked about the the ease with which the United States can wage war by remote control using unmanned vehicles, remotely piloted vehicles, drones. Um, uh, we just don't have a debate about it anymore. These wars aren't even talked about, and, and our colleague Emma is even holding an event called, you know, America's Invisible Wars. These are wars that are ongoing, and yet there is no debate. The public's not even aware that they're happening. Incredibly, many members of Congress aren't even aware that they're happening. There's just no oversight. Uh, there's no discussion about what the interests are, uh, and, um, and easier wars mean more ill-considered wars. I think is that's how Ben puts it. I think it seems about Absolutely. right. Absolutely. And, and each, each action, you, just to take an example that the average listener probably missed in the newspaper, uh, the United States recently killed about 150 members, purported members of al-Shabaab in Somalia. And the, um, the rationale given in the news article I read was that they would presented an immediate threat to U.S. forces, and you sort of wonder what? And then you realize, oh, that's because we have forces two miles away from them in Somalia, right. which it's a little bit uh, circular, the logic there. But, but each one of these invisible uh, to the public actions is, is a little thread uh, that if you pull it enough times, um, it winds you up in a bigger conflict. So we're, we're back in Libya now. I mean, again, I think many members of the public are unaware that Britain, France, and the United States are now uh, bombing Libya actively. Uh, 
in order, to, again, to purportedly confront ISIS and, and try to bring a, um, uh, you know, a, a democratic government into being in Libya. And I'd, the, the rationale there is simply lacking. They haven't been forced to discuss it no. in public very much. No. And, and you wonder how this fellow Obama, who seems to understand the, the limits of U.S. power, why he thinks this is a good idea. It's, it's inconceivable. It, it, it seems odd that, and perhaps this is a, a problem of simply living in Washington, D.C., but if these are invisible wars, you're definitely not signaling to the public that you're doing something. <laughs> right. You're signaling right. to people who live in Washington, D.C. that you're doing something and foreign governments right. that are friendly or less friendly to right. you that you're doing something. Right. The issue is invisible to whom. That's right. right? I mean, <laughs> the, the, the public at large, especially as you point out, Caleb, outside of the Beltway, uh, they are not engaged in this. The wars, and and this is where you know you you have to compare. We say the Libyan war was a disaster. Yes, I think it was a disaster. It was a disaster for the people of Libya, uh, who have been suffering under this horrible civil war for for over five years now. Um, could it have been worse for the United States? Oh, absolutely, right? So, so if, the, if the model, if the, if the example is, well, at least it's not Iraq, at least it's not Afghanistan, it's not 180,000 U.S. troops on the ground, it's not 100,000 troops on the ground, it's, it's none or virtually none. And is that better? Well, yes, but we still have to ask the question, why are we involved in the first place? What are we actually attempting to achieve? Is it necessary for our national security? And Yes, we should talk about it as a country because we actually are going to be held responsible by someone in the future if it goes badly, which it often does. And the United States has simply given uh, ammunition to people in the Middle East who want to create grand narratives that are anti-American in nature. No matter where this person might live or what political system they're trying to influence, at this point you have a pretty darn good set of cases about how the United States behaves, about art our intentions. And, you know, frankly, I, I just don't see that going very well for us over the next generation right. where, where this stuff plays out. And every, in, every sort of pseudo in, invasion that we did in Libya or Somalia or wherever, um, I'm afraid it's going to come back and bite us. Is there a political lesson to be taken from the fact that Bernie Sanders is doing relatively well, once again, using her Iraq war vote as a cudgel against uh, Hillary Clinton? Yes, it, it appears to be doing most, uh, best among younger voters, uh, millennials. Trevor has written about this a lot. Um, and in the same way that much of the energy behind Barack Obama's candidacy in 2007 and 2008 also came from younger voters. Um, the wars are unpopular among, uh, by, the, by the public at large uh, and especially among Democrats. Uh, and so it doesn't shock me that uh, Bernie Sanders isn't doing better. The one thing we've talked about, Caleb, before is that Bernie Sanders still doesn't seem to care all that much. If this was really such a, such a terrific cudgel, uh, a wise uh, political strategy would be to using it, using it more effectively. As it is, it seems more ad hoc. It's like, oh, well, well you know, I'm looking for something today to, to beat her with. This is a good argument. Uh, you know, he, he appears to have very, very little interest even in foreign policy to, uh, still, uh, despite, uh, you know, his candidacy is still, you know, grinding on. Yeah, I, you're right. I mean, he should be able to use the twin domestic focus arguments, focus on our economy, don't get distracted by pointless foreign wars as a one-two punch. But he, I think the interventionist cult is just so pervasive at this point that even Bernie Sanders doesn't see it as a useful argument, which right. is strange. And, and she has called him out because he has supported wars in the past that would not meet my criteria for the legitimate uses of force. So he can't hold himself out as a true non-interventionist or a real skeptic of the use of military power. At best, he, is, uh, he has an uneven track record on this point. All right. Uh, and on the other side of that, we've seen uh, Donald Trump and Ted Cruz do far better than Marco Rubio. And Rubio is, I would say, the most interventionist on the stage. Yes. That's right. Um, when Marco Rubio stood up his campaign team, it was populated by uh, the establishment in the Republican Party, which is overwhelmingly dominated by neoconservatives. Um, from, the, from his slogan, which is New American Century, this is the name for a famous neoconservative organization in the late 1990s. Right, it's project branding. For a new, right, Solid right, branding. Right. right. So, so he went into this campaign, it would appear, believing that uh, 
that intervention, military intervention, was a, was politically popular, that he actually could win on that platform uh, or at least not be hurt by it. Uh, I think nothing that has happened in this campaign uh, would, would suggest that he, that, he was, that he was right. In fact, his support for these interventions hurt him politically. His, um, he did have certain intangibles that made him appear more electable vis-a-vis Hillary Clinton, and yet he has consistently failed to catch on. And I think one of the reasons why is he, he just betrays a lack of learning from these horrible interventions of the last 15 years. I think you're right, and I think the neoconservative moment is over. Um, I guess we're going to be hosting an event a couple of days yeah, from now about, about the, the libertarian, libertarian moment. moment. Right. But uh, Lot, Lots of moments are over. <laughs> many moments are over, um, <laughs> but I think we, we've reached and passed peak neocon. And I do think they played a sort of shadow government role pushing Obama in, towards action over the last eight years, for sure. But um, I think with, with less impact than they had, obviously, the eight years prior. And regardless of who gets elected, I think their influence on that next administration will be even lower for various reasons. And, and I think, you know, Marco was such a perfect reflection of that group, um, that his, his repudiation, despite being obviously the most well-prepared candidate on foreign policy in Absolutely. a general sense, oh, yeah. his total repudiation is, is a, you know, a sign that that's not what drives the American uh, electorate right now. All right, gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Trevor Thrall, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, and Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy at the Cato Institute. You can read more of their work and uh, follow our events and other publications at our website, cato.org. Penn Jillette, the larger, louder half of the magic duo Penn & Teller, didn't come to his libertarianism by poring over treatises on government. He came to it very simply through a relatively straightforward thought experiment and spoke at the Cato Institute's Benefactors Summit held in Las Vegas this February. I got out of high school. Notice I don't say graduated. Uh, I got out of high school on a plea bargain. I, um, I, had, I had reasonable SATs, and I went in my, the beginning of my senior year, and I said to my principal uh, that if... Uh, I wanted to pass because that was important to my family that I actually finish high school. But I wasn't going to come to school anymore because I was sick of that. And that if he um, did not graduate me at the end of my senior year, I would give an impassioned speech to the uh, school board that they were not dealing well with their gifted speakers, uh, gifted students. And um, he said to me, are you threatening me? And I said, yes. And um, we made that deal. So. Um, by the time, uh, before I finished high school, I was out on the road uh, in the USA. I had read that um, Bob Dylan had hitchhiked across the country and hopped trains and lived homeless for years. And so I did that. I actually did it for two years and then found out later when I met Bob Dylan that he went directly from the University of Minnesota to New York City and became a superstar within six months. So. Um, he actually never hopped the train and never hitchhiked and never went all around the country till he was doing it in a fancy bus and a private jet. But I did um, because I was unable to do the arithmetic that uh, if he had his first album out when he was 19 and he'd gone to college, he did not have a lot of time for hopping trains and doing all that. So I learned to eat fire. And uh, I learned to juggle. I'm going to be a really good juggler. And I went to Ringling Brothers Barnum Bailey Greatest Show on Earth Clown College. And I say Ringling Brothers Barnum Bailey Greatest Show on Earth Clown College all the way through because if you work for Ringling Brothers Barnum Bailey Greatest Show on Earth and you ever say circus or show or the Ringling Show without saying Ringling Brothers Barnum Bailey Greatest Show on Earth, you were fined. And um, we weren't paid that much. So I always say, Ringling Brothers, Barn and Bailey, greatest show on earth. And I was tracked. You know, I met Teller when I was uh, 18, uh, right about that time that I was, you know, living in America. I guess you could say homeless, although I, I could have always gone back with my parents and they were, they were very, my relationship with them was wonderful. So I wasn't really, I wasn't in danger. I just didn't have a place to live. Um, and I was traveling around the country. And I met Teller when I was 18, and we started putting together our, um, our magic show. And uh, that was, you know, 40 years ago, and we've been, we've been working on it at that time. And I guess we were kind of fast-tracked to be um, 
Hollywood liberals. You know, uh, I should, I guess, at this point in my life, I'm in show business. Um, I, I got a, you know, this kind of impotent ponytail back here. Um, I probably should be a, uh, a liberal. I probably should be a, you know, Bernie Sanders supporter, and I should be feeling the burn. Um, but uh, I'm not. I'm not feeling the burn, and I'm not really a liberal. And uh, everybody who is libertarian or Cato, uh, the way the media and the way uh, people tend to present us is that um, we're conservatives or we're people with money that want to smoke dope, is what's sometimes said. Um, and uh, that's really not true at all for me. I, I do not come from uh, to, to libertarianism because I am a, a really successful business person or a, or a CEO or because uh, I have to fight regulations or, or any of that kind of stuff. I really come to it from a uh, purely hippie uh, point of view. I have always been a peacenik and when it got to be the 80s, uh, I met a man named Tim Jennison. I don't know if any of you saw a, a movie that I, I made called uh, Tim's Vermeer, um, but it's a movie uh, about, a, uh, about a genius who uh, started to figure that maybe uh, Vermeer, the 17th century painter, had, uh, had used uh, lenses and equipment to be able to paint, and maybe what we were actually seeing from that time was photographs from the 17th century and not paintings at all. It's a, it's a crazy thing. It took us five years to make the movie. It took us uh, a lot of money. Tim uh, founded New Tech, which is a, a video company that kind of uh, let CNN edit the first Gulf War. It made, um, it made video editing, it changed the whole world, and he made an awful lot of money that way. And. Uh, I became very close friends with Tim Jennison before he was painting a Vermeer in his warehouse in Texas. And um, I was then just your kind of standard liberal there in the end of the 80s. And Tim was libertarian. He was pro-freedom. And Tim was also brilliant. And Tim was also really successful. And Tim was also compassionate. And Tim was also a, uh, a peacenik. And I started giving all the arguments for why the government had to be more powerful and do all these things and all the arguments that you now hear as is, is feeling the burn. And Tim said a really simple sentence to me. He said, do you think it's okay to punish people who've done nothing wrong? And I said no, even though I kind of felt somewhere in my heart it was a trick question. And then he said, then why is it okay to reward people who've done nothing right? And he said, because can't, can't you see that you can't reward without punishing? They are the same thing. And that shut me up for a little while. And then Tim started saying, you know, you're so against force. You've never hit anybody in your life. You have been beat up. You've been in carnival situations that have gone badly, and people have hit you and you've not hit them back because you didn't think it was life-threatening. You are insanely peacenik in terms of the way you see war and what the country should do. Why do you think it's so okay for the government to use force to get things done that you think are good ideas? And I started thinking that one really good definition of government is government is supposed to have a monopoly on force. They're the only ones who are allowed to use force legally. And then we are supposed to be the government. And I didn't come up with any sort of uh, belief in the invisible hand will make us all richer or there'll be prosperity. I know people make those arguments, and they're probably right, but that's not where any of my love for libertarianism comes. It comes from this simple idea that the government are the guys with the guns, and we are the people who tell the government what they can do. So in my morality... 
I shouldn't be able to tell anyone to do something with a gun that I wouldn't do myself. Now, I want to add here that I am incompetent and I am a coward. So this is all theoretical, what I'm about to say. I wouldn't actually be able to accomplish this stuff. But if you asked me, if someone is being murdered, would you use a gun to stop that murder? Now, that's saying that I know it's a real murder going on and I know the person is innocent and all of that stuff going on. But this is the Godonkin. It's a thought experiment. Would I use a gun to stop a murder? Yeah. Would I use a gun to stop a rape? Yeah. Would I use the threat of a gun, a gun, stop robbery? Yeah. I think it kind of got to. Would I use a gun to protect our country and our way of life? Yeah. Would I use a gun to build a library? No. Do I think libraries are really important? Wicked important. Really important. Well, I mean, I, was, I came from a, a, a dead factory town in western Massachusetts before the internet. You know, without the Greenfield Public Library, I wouldn't have had a chance. I rode my bike there every day. I read everything. When Frank Zappa put in the back of the album, Lumpy Gravy, do not listen to this until you've read Kafka's in the Penal Colony. I jumped on my bike and rode to the library and read it and then came back and listened to the record. I, I follow directions well. <laughs> so will I give my money to help someone build a library? Yeah. Will I ask other people to give their money to help build the library? Yeah. Will I beg other people to give money to build the library? Yeah. Will I lie to people to give them, to give money to build the library? A little bit. <laughs> Will I use a gun to get someone to build a library? No. And that is, in a nutshell, my entire view of politics. That I have to look over what people want the government to do and say, if I were given all the power, would I use a gun to accomplish what they want to accomplish? The No Child Left Behind Act, with its rules about everything from teacher qualifications to school interventions, has finally been replaced. But is that replacement, the Every Student Succeeds Act, really designed to withdraw Washington from the nation's classrooms? Neil McCluskey directs the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom. He discussed the ESSA in February. And it's important to note whenever we talk about federal education policy that it's unconstitutional. The Constitution gives Washington no authority over education. In fact, you can look at the Constitution, you can scour every word in it, and you won't find education anywhere in there. Then what about the track record? Well, while there's some evidence that No Child Left Behind may have helped, I think, to goose some standardized test scores for some kids, primarily at lower grades, uh, if you look at the NAEP scores for 17-year-olds, who are kind of our school's final products, they tell that the overall tale of American education over the last roughly 40 years, 45 years, about the same time, the federal government has been heavily involved. If you look at that 17-year-old scores, uh, they show that Washington has the very least driven no major lasting improvements in education, at least that are discernible through these NAEP scores. Scores have been almost completely flat since the 1970s, despite real federal spending having risen from $696 per pupil in 1979, inflation adjusted, uh, to $1,148 in 2012, so a near doubling, but essentially flat outcomes. Um, of course, it's not just been the federal spending that has ballooned over the decades, but federal control, which tends to go with federal money. Uh, and it's sort of 
I think culminated in No Child Left Behind's dictates for uniform state standards, uniform state tests, and the punishments for schools that failed to make us, we already talked about, adequate yearly progress. And it, and it was sort of amped up a little. If you, um, if you know uh, the movie Spinal Tap, they took it to 11. Um, a lot of movie references today. Um, but it was amped up with uh, Race to the Top, um, as well as No Child Left Behind. I, I mean, sorry, as No Child Left Behind waivers. And what we saw was now the executive branch, not just Congress, but the executive branch beginning to exert control. And it ultimately led to uh, the very widespread adoption of the Common Core. So when ESSA came about, we were actually on the verge of having Washington dictate both the operation of education, how public schooling would be structured and quote unquote, held accountable for performance, and in fact, what the schools would actually teach, which was what Common Core was about. But I think that what we saw was opposition to this kind of top-down, these top-down dictates, and, and I think also a growing dissatisfaction with just a test-obsessed education system was coalescing on both the left and the right, uh, especially with waiver requirements that teachers be assessed based on standardized test scores their students got, and conservative opposition to the Common Core National Curriculum Standards, uh, as well as the federally funded accompanying tests. So I think the ESSA pretty clear was the result of this coalescing uh, dissatisfaction. Uh, and it is supposed to greatly strip Washington of the power it's gathered the last couple of decades and return most of it to states and districts. And I would say it doesn't. And the problem is there seems to be inherently contradictory uh, uh, components to this law, and it's therefore open to potentially pretty broad interpretation. The basic contradiction is that while the law is supposed to return authority to states and districts, it also demands, um, uh, includes demands rather, about the use of federal funds. Inherently, that implies there's an enforcement authority even where the law suggests it does not have that authority. And this is essentially what the Obama administration and some groups are saying as the major regulation writing process uh, nears. Uh, for instance, in its latest Department of Education budget, the administration writes the following, quote, or the SSA, quote, embraces many reforms the administration has long supported, including requiring states to define and set high standards for college and career readiness and ensuring that states are held accountable for the success of all students. Meanwhile, uh, CONCAN, which is a state education advocacy group but with a national um, presence, uh, they've asked what other groups, not just CONCAN, but I was able to easily find their quote, what they've asked for. They want the feds to make states, quote, maintain challenging and high standards for all students, ensure high quality, valid, and reliable annual statewide assessments, and implement comprehensive and robust school and district accountability and performance systems that help identify and improve our highest need schools and districts. That, to me, doesn't sound like a situation with the feds would have no, quote, authority to mandate, direct, control, coerce, or exercise any direction or supervision of state standards, assessments, or accountability mechanisms. So at the very least, the ESSA seems contradictory and somewhat ambiguous, at least contradictory and ambiguous enough to allow the administration and CONCAN's heavily prescriptive reading of the law, leaving it to the federal government to define what, and this is important, it also leaves it to the federal government to, to define what constitutes challenging in requirements uh, for states to have challenging, this is a quote, challenging state academic standards, academic assessments, and state accountability systems. It also lets Washington decide the mix of academic and other indicators of success in which schools will be judged. In numerous cases, the law also calls for state decisions to be quote-unquote evidence-based, and it appears that the federal government will define what is or is not sufficiently evidence-based. And this all matters because the education secretary ultimately must approve all state plans. But what are those numerous prohibitions against federal identification of quote-unquote specific standards or tests or accountability components? Don't they kind of remove federal teeth and I think the answer quite possibly to that is no. While the secretary cannot say, for instance, you must use Common Core, there's a real danger he or she could just kind of veto 
plans that he or she doesn't like, saying, essentially, I can't tell you what to include, but I can tell you this is not challenging enough. Or they could say, I don't like the evidentiary base of what you plan to do enough. Essentially, he or she could exercise a death by a thousand vetoes, or maybe just you know, have one veto and place a strategic call to a state education chief, or write an op-ed uh, laying out what seems in the view of the Secretary of Education to be challenging standards or maybe good evidence. Since the end of the Cold War, the United States has conducted a number of humanitarian interventions, but policymakers need standards for deciding when to intervene abroad. In his new book, The Question of Intervention, John Stuart Mill and the Responsibility to Protect, author Michael Doyle builds on Mill's 1859 essay, A Few Words on Non-Intervention. Doyle argues that the default principle of non-intervention should only be overridden in grave situations following multilateral deliberation. He spoke at the Cato Institute in February. Mill shares many of the values and assumptions of classic liberalism. He sees human beings as fundamentally uh, the same, sentient beings capable of experiencing pleasure, pain, good and bad. Sympathy, he suggests, should lead us to want to promote to the extent we could through policy the greatest good of the greatest number, the famous utilitarian thesis. Uh, Mill, unlike some utilitarians, thinks that not all pleasures are the same. There are higher pleasures and lower pleasures. He famously said that poetry is better than pushpin. Pushpin is a 19th century game. It's sort of like Game Boy or something like that. Poetry is poetry, and poetry is better than pushpin. Politically, he derives two principles from this basic understanding of human equality and utility. Uh, The first is maximum equal liberty. Because each adult is best able to develop his or her potential, best judge of her own or his own interest, they should be free to do what they do as long as it does not interfere with the rights of others. Uh, The second is representative government. For those decisions that have to be made collectively, because they can't be made individually, the interest and and voice of the majority is better than the voice of the minority as a way to make those decisions. One might think that given that very strong commitment to the value of liberty and the principles of democracy, that one might adopt what the US Constitution also adopts, which is in Article 4.4, something called the Guarantee Clause. All states in the United States are guaranteed to have, that is, must have, a Republican, small r, form of government. And with our 14th Amendment, of course, all states have to provide equal protection of the laws for all persons who are in the U.S. Why not do that globally if you really believe in those principles the way that he genuinely does? Well, this is not what Mill argues for internationally. Instead, of course, he argues for non-intervention as a general rule among civilized countries. And he says that it's so for two very important reasons. The first is that imposing liberty, good as it is, and democracy, good as it is, is radically inauthentic. That is, unless people choose it for themselves, What does it mean to say that they're acting democratically, that they're determining collectively their their form of government in life? Moreover, there's no really universal form of free government. Authentic freedom is the freedom to make up your own version of it. Let me give you a more concrete example. Think of the US and the UK, two card-carrying liberal democracies if you ever had to find two. One of them, of course, has a hereditary head of state and has an established religion, and the other, so far, does not. So that's a very different world, equally legitimate. Uh, Both of them making equivalently strong claims to liberty and democratic government. So first of all, it would be inauthentic to attempt to impose liberty and democracy around the world. 
Second, for Mill and other liberals, it's a good thing. He also warns us that trying to do so would have bad consequences. And here's where his utilitarianism creeps back in. He says that if a free or democratic government is pulled out of, let's call it the knapsack of an invading army that is attempting to impose such a government, one established by force, there are three likely outcomes that come from that act of imposition. First of all, the local liberals, call them knapsack liberals, because they lack effective political support from below, will collapse as soon as the interveners leave. The only way you can establish a government, he thinks, is through what he calls arduous struggle. That is sacrificing for it, organizing for it, building support across a community so that the citizens are prepared to participate, pay taxes, risk their lives if necessary in an army or a police force. Without that, government cannot survive. And so if you try to just pull out some individuals from a knapsack, run up a flag, and call themselves a free independent government, the most likely outcome is they will collapse, according to Mill. The second thing he hypothesizes, okay, you've brought in some liberals who claim to be good liberals and set them up, but what then happens is that they discover they have very little popular support, very little popular support, and they discover that the only way to stay in power or keep themselves alive is to act forcibly, despotically. So rather than having brought a free government, you've brought simply another autocracy and experienced all the cost of war through invasion. Thirdly, the interveners who pull out this knapsack good liberals and put them into power realize that they're so weak that they're likely to collapse and say to themselves, we can't allow our allies to fall apart. And so then the interveners never leave. And what you've created in those circumstances is an empire, not a free government. So those are the three, a new civil war, a new autocracy, an empire, he says, are the three likely consequences of trying to impose a free government on a country that's not been able to win it for itself. Now, I'm a political scientist, and so I did my little political science thing with the help of a very good graduate student named Camille Strauss-Kahn. When a professor says that he has the help of a graduate student, it means that he or she is really doing most of the scrambling work. So I should have mentioned that. Camille deserves a lot of credit. We looked at every intervention from 1815 to today. We counted 334 of them. They're all listed in the appendix of this book. Only 221 of those interventions were militarily successful. The others were repulsed at the, at the borders. Of those 221, 56 led to a new civil war after the intervention. 68 produced an autocracy that was worse than the previous regime. 146, remember this is the 19th century and early 20th century, led to a new empire. Only 26 of the ones we looked at produced a free, independent, more rights-respecting, participatory state. Economic sanctions are supposed to chasten authoritarian regimes. In many cases, however, sanctions can mask the true causes of a poor economy and give the regime in power a convenient scapegoat. Emma Ashford, a visiting research fellow at the Cato Institute, discussed the poor record of sanctions in February. The Implementation of sanctions on Russia over the last 18 months has been at the same time one of the most ambitious uses of sanctions in sort of modern history and also I would argue one of the least successful. Um, they've not been particularly successful. I'm going to discuss that a little as I go forward and the real question is is there something that we can do to improve our sanctions regime against Russia or do we just have to perhaps accept that there are some situations in which sanctions aren't all that effective? Um, and in framing that, I would just mention one particular factor. Russia is a very large country. Russia is, if not a great power, then at least a regional power. Russia is a major economic powerhouse. 
Many of the countries that we have imposed sanctions on over the last 15 years have been small states, states without a lot of economic clout. Um, Russia is qualitatively different from those states. And I think bearing that fact in mind as we talk about some of the unexpected consequences in the Russian case um, might be useful. Um, and the economic impact of all these sanctions has been relatively severe. So Russia's economy contracted by about 3% of GDP last year. Inflation hit 16%. That's extremely high. Um, the ruble has lost uh, more than half its value. All of these things are the sign of an economy that is really in trouble. And the Kremlin has had problems in creating financing for various companies. It's had to dig into its foreign exchange reserves, which have fallen substantially in order to prop up ailing companies as a result. But this comes with a couple of big caveats. Um, firstly, we're talking about the impact of sanctions. Um, but in fact, oil and the fall in oil prices over the last year has had a lot more to do with this than sanctions have. Um, so it's really hard to disentangle the impact of the oil price drop from that of sanctions because just coincidentally, most of those changes happened within about a week of one another. We put on the majority of sanctions in July, 2015, July 2014, excuse me, and the same week oil prices fell substantially. So it's been difficult to tell what the impact of sanctions versus the impact of oil has been, but various macroeconomic analyses, um, timing analyses have all showed that oil prices have probably had more to do with this than sanctions have. Um, insofar as sanctions have had an impact, they've probably just worsened the crisis and made it more difficult for the Russian government to respond to the economic problems. And then a second uh, caveat here. So there's a lot of pain in the Russian economy, but economic pain isn't really the metric that we use to determine the success of sanctions, right? If the goal of sanctions is to change minds inside the Russian government, that hasn't really happened. Um, we've seen a lot of what we might call in academic language punishment, but no coercion. We haven't seen them changing minds. Um, since the sanctions have come into force, Russia fully absorbed Crimea. They continued the insurgency in the east of the country. Um, they added an intervention in Syria. Um, and even though they've come to the negotiating table uh, with the Minsk process, they've not followed through with it. And it's really unclear how much of a role sanctions played in that decision. Um, so the bottom line is sanctions haven't really had the effects we wanted. There have been a variety of unexpected economic effects, but we've not produced the policy outcomes we really wanted to see. Um, and of particular interest to me is the fact that these new sophisticated, targeted, smart sanctions um, have actually produced results much more similar to the old kind of comprehensive embargoes that we used back in the 1980s and 90s. Um, so one reason sanctions policy changed in the 2000s, 9-11 attacks and terrorist financing did play a big role. But the other reason was we had seen the failure of comprehensive embargo style sanctions on Iraq huge human suffering as our sanctions caused the population to starve, be unable to get medicine, while Saddam Hussein's regime enriched itself. Um, and so targeted sanctions, they're supposed to avoid all of these problems. But in the case of Russia, what we find is kind of similar, though not nearly so severe, impacts. So Putin has been able to quite effectively shelter the people closest to his regime. Um, as Eric commented on, He's sidelined some of his more marginal supporters, and he's funneled a lot of the benefits instead to the people who are the strongest supporters of his own regime. So if you look at an analysis of how much wealth wealthy Russians lost in the last year as a result of currency fluctuations and the failing economy, people who were sanctioned lost about 3% of their wealth overall. Individuals who weren't sanctioned lost about 9% of their wealth. And this is because the Kremlin was able to award government contracts to supporters, um, to shift contracts from those that weren't strong supporters to those that were, and basically prop up their closest supporters at the expense of those who are perhaps more liberal, the people we really want the Kremlin to be listening to. The impact on the general population, too, has been worse than we would have expected. Um, these sanctions are designed to avoid impacting the population at large. But between inflation, government cuts to social services, um, many Russians have had problems paying back mortgages that were denominated in other currencies 
as the ruble has fallen so far, there's been a big credit crunch in the country. And in fact, ordinary Russians are actually feeling the pinch um, of both the oil price drop and economic sanctions more than perhaps many of the elites are. Um, and the Kremlin has been able to continue military spending. There have been substantial cuts to every government department, but very few cuts to military spending. They're continuing to fund the things they want to fund while hurting the people who perhaps don't support them. Um, and this sort of brings me to a final, perhaps major problem with the sanctions regime on Russia. Sanctions have actually produced domestic political benefits for Vladimir Putin. Um, they haven't made him unpopular. In fact, his popularity rating has risen 20 points since the, since the invasion of Crimea last year. Um, Putin tells the Russian people that sanctions aren't related to Ukraine. It's the United States, it's Western Europe. We are trying to inhibit Russian economic development. Um, we're trying to hobble Russia's sovereignty or independence, or I think at one point he even said the right to exist. And sanctions from the West are directed not at Russia's aggressive actions, they're just directed at the Russian people. Um, and in doing so, we're basically giving Putin an out for a lot of his bad economic mismanagement. So if most of the economic problems came from oil and not just from sanctions, what we find is that Putin is able to blame his poor economic mismanagement on Western sanctions. If the sanctions didn't exist, he would have to explain to the Russian people why the economy was in such bad shape. Cato University is an annual program that brings together outstanding faculty and participants from across the country. In the highly politicized atmosphere of an election year, our nation's capital is the perfect setting for this year's program. And we hope you'll join us in Washington, D.C., July 24th through the 29th, as we explore the ideals of liberty and the fundamental values of the American Republic. For more information, visit Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.